As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. Welcome to the Total Soccer Show. My name is Taylor Rockwell, and on today's episode, we've got seven listener questions that need some answering. Ryan Bailey is traveling back to Europe, so he is not with us today, hence why I am talking right now. But I am joined by two lovely gentlemen with us today. Is a fellow who I'm assuming is taking a break from his wall of football screens. It's Graham Ruthven. Hi, Graham. <laughs> hello, hello, Taylor. How are you? Yeah, as as a, a wall of uh, football screens, I quite like this uh this Twitter trend that's developing of people tagging yeah. me in whenever they have th- their own kind of comparable setup, uh, and I feel like I am the I've become the judge of that. So yeah, yeah, I, I enjoy those tweets. Keep them coming. I, I, actually, that begs the question: When you see other people's setups, do you get jealous or do you look at that like amateurs? Like, what's the vibe, Grant? <laughs> so some some of most of them are just admiration because <laughs> to be fair, perfectly honest i am quite confident in my own setup but then sean rosales who works at espn and i think is a listener of the show uh obviously has that professional espn setup <laughs> and i when he tweeted me that at me i did go ah oh, i wish i had that that is a lot better actually than what i have got so <laughs> and grab sean invite me one day <laughs> so i can uh just enjoy that wall of screens. It is always impressive to see like the professional setup when they've got all the screens. We went in and watched Extra Time Record and all of the stuff they've got going on. I assure you, we don't have nearly as many cameras or monitors or producers. Uh, we do have a team of them in the background. I just don't let them do anything. There's just 12 people sitting around in my bedroom right now. Uh, Gra- Graham, do you have to have like methods in place for eye fatigue? I know this is a strange way to begin the show, but I do wonder this. Like Staring at screens all day, how do you alleviate that? Do you just go st- stare at the sun? The sun that occasionally exists in Scotland? <laughs> there's there's a sun in Scotland. Uh, news to me. I mean, you you, you do realise, Taylor, that I am, I am ill all the time. Oh, and so true. I don't take care of any part of my body. So no, that eye, eye fatigue is not something that I've ever uh, taken any measures against. Graham, Graham, just a sickly Scottish lord. Just stays inside, doesn't go outside amongst the people. I like it. All right, that's a good way to begin. Graham, the Scottish lord. Joining us is a man who will never get relegated. But if he did, he knows it wouldn't be that big of a deal. I'm leading into the questions. It's Joe Lowry. Hi, Joe. I, I, Taylor, I will never be relegated. I will go out sometimes and not stare directly at the sun because I don't think that would help your <laughs> no, eyes. Not so any. much. <laughs> definitely not in Arizona. Yeah, definitely not in Arizona. <laughs> I will try try to battle eye fatigue while I avoid getting relegated. All of those things are on my to-do list for that. today. Yeah, I, I really, I really worked myself into a corner there by like going outside and looking, and then I couldn't think of anything, <laughs> and I went with sun. Don't look at the sun. It turns out that's my PSA for the day. Uh, yeah, we've got a bunch of questions. I said seven. A few people packed in two questions into their one cheeky, question cheeky, submission. Cheeky. <laughs> uh, up first, we've got one from Kenneth Sidon. Joe, I'm coming to you because I know Graham has lots and lots of thoughts. He found this one super easy to answer. Joe, <laughs> between Ricardo Pepe at Augsburg, George Bello at Armenia, and Pellegrino Matarazzo at Stuttgart, which American spending next season in Bundesliga 2, the Zwei Bundesliga, would be least harmful to their long-term career? 
Ricardo Pepe is my answer to that question. Really? It would be it would be to be clear a huge bummer to see that happen. Right after all of the fanfare of him breaking through with Dallas and then going and scoring a bunch of goals at the US over a very short period of time and then getting that exciting move with a, a club record transfer fee for Augsburg and David Blitzer being an owner and spending some money there. That would that would really put a, a it would really harm the narrative, right? That yeah. we're working with here. But Ricardo Pepe needs reps. He needs goal-scoring reps. He needs a chance to make runs and to be aggressive in and around the 18-yard box. And that's just not happening in the Bundesliga, guys. Like I said on yesterday's show, everything that we worried about happening with Ricardo Pepe is happening. He has six shots, fellas. Six shots total since moving to Augsburg in the winter window. He has 200 and some odd minutes played. He's played in six different games, but not all as a starter. He hasn't even racked up a full expected goal yet, and he certainly hasn't racked up a goal yet in the Bundesliga I feel like we've kind of lived this story before, at least in part with Josh Sargent, and he goes off and, and plays with Norwich, and we've all seen how well or poorly that's gone, emphasis on poorly. I, I, I don't know. It doesn't seem like Ricardo Pepe spending another season with a relegation-battling Augsburg team in the Bundesliga is a better option than him spending time in the second Bundesliga. I think it actually might be a good move for him to do something like that after the way this season's gone. I cannot believe how compelling of an argument Joe just made for Ricardo Pepe because I was all ready to dunk on that answer and now <laughs> I'm I'm slightly swayed. Graham, I come to you. What do you what do you make of this question? So I agree with Joe now, speaking today, sixteenth of <laughs> yeah. March, Wednesday. Um a few weeks ago it would have been a different it would have been a different answer because of all the reasons Joe says. Um I think Pepe now he just needs he just needs game time and if that comes in the in, in the second tier the the second Bundesliga what how do you pronounce that again Bundesliga Zwei yeah yeah um, if that comes in that league uh, then that is <laughs> that, I think that's beneficial for his development. Bello uh, just through the process of elimination he's maybe at the bottom of the list because I think Matarazzo he has already been in the second tier he's got Stuttgart out of there once before I guess. Um, the threat for him would be that he loses his job if Stuttgart are relegated. In fact, that might even be likely, but I, I still think he has some credit in the bank and he probably ends up, if, if he ends up in another job in Germany, it's probably at the very least at the at the top end of the second tier and, and that could quite easily become you know, a promotion back to, to the Bundesliga. So I honestly don't think Matarazzo has that much to worry about, whereas the two players maybe have slightly more to concern themselves with. And which one do you think would have like the more negative impact on their career? Are you leaning Pepe or are you leaning Bello? I'm I'm going with Bello, but only only really through process of huh. elimination. <laughs> and uh, I'm not so worried about it with Matarazzo. I think it it would be a bummer for Pepe. Let's let's not get away from that. He's you know a twenty million dollar striker who's not playing football right now but I could see the positives of it and yeah through process elimination I'm not sure I can make that compelling an argument for Bello let's let's see him wow I I this is a, the type of question where if you answer it just like right away on on gut answer it's not that difficult of one but as soon as you start spending some time with it and getting into the the muck it gets a little bit harder because there are positives and negatives for all of these Joe again a very compelling argument for why it would be okay for or like least impactful for Ricardo Pepe not where I was expecting this to go because I had it as it would be most harmful to Pepe given the money invested given the kind of hype behind him uh then I had it as being Matarazzo potentially also not that affected if they let him stay on if they were sort of like it was the Sean Deitch thing of you've done enough you can stay with us as we go down and then hopefully you get us back up and that's where I landed on George Bello as being the most impactful just because for him to get sent down. I think he's like already on the periphery of Greg Berhalter's radar, so I don't know if playing in the second division in Germany is going to help with that. But I guess there is an argument that, yeah, Pepe needs reps, he needs shots, he needs an opportunity to build that confidence. And I also think, yeah, if they got relegated and he was offered a move, I don't know if that's the best idea either. either. So, yeah, Joe, I'm, I'm coming around to Ricardo Pepe as being the one who could handle that the most. And maybe even it takes a little bit of the hype off of him and allows him to just play instead of being the future number nine for the U.S. in 2022 and 2026. There is a scenario, though, where it is the the most harmful for Pepe in that if he goes down to the second Bundesliga and still struggles in that division... Then all of a sudden, a player who the US was kind of counting on for the next few years being a you know first team player and having a very high ceiling, as demonstrated by his twenty million pound, twenty million dollar price tag, all of a sudden isn't playing or isn't uh, playing well in the second tier of German football. Yeah. Uh, 
that's that 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 then is when it switches and it becomes the most harmful trust the giant cowboy hat graham trust it (laughs) i always do uh all right i I think we've answered that one we've got a double question from shreyas romani up next we'll start with graham graham is harry Maguire really as bad as he's looked this season or does the current manchester united team and setup not do him any favors yeah, so let me let me game this one out, okay? Because I've got a theory. And I've had this theory for a long time and I don't think I've ever said it on the pod about Harry Maguire. But my theory is that Harry Maguire is very good at what he does. Hear me out here, okay? Right? This is going to go a little bit further. So back in the Leicester City days, Maguire was asked to... Uh, keep the defensive line pretty much generally on the edge of his own box. His job there was to be a a barrier, cross comes in, head it away. Someone takes a shot from the edge of the box, block it. Another cross comes in, head that away too. His role for England has generally been similar to that as well because England under Southgate have generally um, played a conservative game. They've played on the counter-attack, certainly at the 2018 World Cup, which is maybe where Maguire had his best period ever for, for club and country. That's where he kind of got that massive valuation is from his performances at that World Cup. And England played, as I say, a conservative game, played in the counter-attack in, in that tournament. And Maguire, that means their defence is sitting pretty deep. And Maguire is comfortable there. As I say, I think he's very good there, actually. When Man United have played in a similar way, which they did a lot under Solskjaer, Maguire was also very good. People forget he has been an, impl- an important player for Man United in the past. Was he ever worth £80 million? No. But did he play his part? Absolutely. And when he got injured before the Europa League final last season, that was seen as a big blow. I remember writing articles about it, about United. He was in decent form at that time because United were playing on the counter-attack. Their defence was quite quite deep. And again, that's where Maguire is at his best. And they missed him in that Europa League final when he was injured. However... Last summer, Raphael Varane comes into Manchester United and the whole reason I believe Man United got Varane, or at least a big reason, was his his pace and his ability to recover head, heading towards his, his own goal. All of a sudden, Solskjaer's then decided that he can move his, his defensive line five to ten yards higher up the pitch. Maguire, though, that might suit Varane, but Maguire is really uncomfortable playing that high. He doesn't have the pace, he turns very slowly... His use of the ball is is quite cumbersome as well. And um, it's not really a role that he's performed for Leicester or for England, and he's a fish out of water. The change of management is then made, so you might think Maguire would improve, but it's Ranić, Ralph Ranić, who comes in. And, oh, he also wants to play a high line, so tough tough luck, Harry Maguire. So that's my theory with Harry Maguire is... It's poor recruitment from Manchester United because the way that they want to play or a way that Manchester United, a dominant team with all that talent, they want to dictate and impose their own game. Their game was not similar to the game that Maguire had played at Leicester and not similar up until that point, that the, the game that he played with England. So he was, he was, he's been a misfit for Manchester United a lot of the time. And in the odd occasion when they have played the Leicester City-England game, Maguire has actually been pretty good for Manchester United. So I think it's... Um, He's nowhere near, to answer the question, he's he's not a bad player. He's nowhere near £80 million valuation. That was ridiculous at the time, and, and it spoke to Manchester United's desperation in the transfer market. But yes, I do believe my United setup doesn't do him any favours, and if you move him into another team, you'd probably see a much higher performance level. Who would be the team that you think, Leicester maybe, but aside from Leicester, who would be the team that you think Maguire could slot into and it would sort of suit his skill set better, would make them a better team right away? Yeah, so I'm trying to think of teams that do kind of sit deep, play in the quick transition. Maybe, maybe West Ham. So I'm thinking, you know, he's he's a he's a much better version of someone like Craig Dawson, who plays that position for West Ham pretty well. The whole kind of uh, maintain the line, head crosses away, make blocks of, from shots. That that's maybe what Craig Dawson does for West Ham. And if if Manchester United were to somehow move Maguire on, that's kind of the level. As I say, he's not he's not a bad player, Harry Maguire. He's probably Europa League level. Um, He's still probably good enough for England. He's played his, his his best football, I'd say, for England. But yeah, for my United, their setup isn't isn't uh, suited to him at all. I would say. I almost want to see, and I guess I do want to see, for Harry Maguire's sake, a more tactically cohesive Manchester United team before we really talk about moving him on. And I know this is all fictional, right? I know, Graham, you're just answering that question. I think Maguire is a really good player. I, I don't think he's an elite level Van Dyke esque center back. To your point, Graham. But he's, he's good. He's comfortable on the ball, which is one thing I think that we haven't brought up so far. He's comfortable on the ball in a lot of situations. He can drive it forward. He can progress the ball with his passing. The, the thing that I think he gets heat for the most, and understandably so, is the defensive errors, right? Uh, 
But those kinds of things happen. That's, that happens for any center back. I think back to the own that goal. That was a lot for him. It, it does, to be fair. That's, that's true. <laughs> but that own goal we had against Tottenham, right, over the weekend, it's unfortunate he's sliding in to try and block that cross and ends up going to the back of the net. But those are the kinds of things that happen when you play good teams. And those are the kinds of things that happen when your team is struggling and has struggled for quite some time to find a cohesive identity and a structure. And that's certainly the case this season as players seemingly aren't fully bought into what Ralph Rangnick wants them to do. And before that, there was a little bit of chaos under Ole Gunnar Solskjaer. And it doesn't really feel like that's going to change anytime soon until the squad is a little bit different, until there's a more permanent managerial presence that, that the players seem to actually like and care about. So I, I, I guess I don't directly disagree with anything you said, Graham, but I'm not so confident that that Maguire's ceiling isn't a little bit higher, but we just haven't had a chance to see it with a really effective, dominant Manchester United team because that team hasn't existed for the last X number of years now. As a Manchester United fan, gentlemen, this conversation does not spark joy. Uh, yeah, I think I, I have not loved Taylor. Did you, did you literally have your head in your hands there? It, it sounded like you a little did. bit. It started. It started out happier. I was fine uh, because my answer was yes and yes uh, to that question. He has not looked good. The Man United setup doesn't do him any favors. But as we keep finding out with Manchester United, any conversation about them inevitably devolves into, well, everything is bad and nothing is well run and no one knows what they're doing. And he was at it at this point when they were trying to play this way, which was four iterations ago. No one has any idea what they're doing. And now I'm sad again. Go St. Pauli. I'm just fully on the St. Pauli <laughs> bandwagon now at this point. Let's just go yeah. that route. Uh, yeah. So I think Harry Maguire, I think also the captain's armband does not help. I think that is the other factor that makes things seem worse between that and the the Greek fracas to start the season. I think there's a feeling that... Uh, Everything or whatever season that was, time has lost all meaning. It just, I think there's a lot of, historically, you look at the Man United skipper, the Man United center backs as being this, like, this leader that you don't mess with, that unifies the team and organizes the team. And I don't think you look at Harry Maguire and see that either, but I do think there are other circumstances beyond his control that don't really help with that. So... Uh, that's Harry Maguire, but we have another part of Shreyas' question, which is totally related. I can see why they're linked. They're not related at all. Of the major soccer broadcasters in the United States, Joe Lowry, uh, ESPN, CBS, Fox, NBC, BN Sports, whose coverage do you enjoy the most and maybe the least as well? Okay, I'll start with the least because that's really right. easy from that list. It's got to be BN, right? They did AFCON so dirty. Oh, Joe, I'd love to hear your answer, but we're going to pause really quickly for a commercial that doesn't have commercials for 30 <laughs> seconds. We'll be right back. Point back. Go, Joe, go ahead. Point prove it. Uh, that's as much I need to say about that. I mean, BN does do a good job with some things, and I appreciate how they've provided a launching pad for a lot of, of soccer broadcasters, but the quality just isn't there, and I don't think they have the same resources. The The broadcaster in the U.S. that I enjoy the most, and maybe this is just recency bias, but... I've liked a lot of what CBS has done, although I do appreciate ESPN, NBC, and Fox, too, for the things they do as well. There's different pieces of those of those broadcasters that I enjoy for different reasons. But, man, CBS has come onto the scene strong, I think. They've put a ton of resources into their UCL coverage. They put a lot of resources in, in, into their Serie A coverage as well, and even into the, the U.S. men's national team coverage. They've had some good, creative approaches to getting different people in studio. They, I think they have... Had at times some good analysis as well, which is something that I tend to look for in, in broadcasters. That's an area where I think they could grow. I don't think that's as strong in, in some of the different areas, but it's entertaining for sure with the crowd of people they have in studio with some of the broadcast teams as well. And they have good uh, good social coverage too. They've done some really clever and well put together videos for World Cup qualifiers and for Serie A games and for Champions League games. I think they're hitting this thing on, on almost every front and I really appreciate the work they're doing for soccer in the U.S. Uh, I regret that I'm not better at comedy because what I should have done to accurately reflect what BN does is just like muted Joe for the entire <laughs> explanation and then come right back in as he wrapped up with his. Oh, that would thoughts. have been good. Oh, BN Sports. Uh, I, Joe, I share your uh, your enthusiasm for CBS, and I think a lot of these broadcasters have done a good job in changing either the way they cover the sport, like CBS, or the volume of games that they have on offer, like ESPN, and especially ESPN+. Plus. NBC has done a great job. We've talked about them plenty. I would say I, I think Fox deserves a little bit of praise, which is an odd one for me to say, because I get frustrated when they lie about kickoff. But for me, a person who uses <laughs> Fubo as well as all the different streaming platforms, Fox is the one that regularly puts their games on Fubo, and I do appreciate that you can DVR them there. ESPN significantly less so a lot of stuff on ESPN plus harder to find if you don't have those packages and I do think that is probably the knock against some of these for some people like Paramount plus 
I think if you were had already subscribed to Turner or BR and were kind of prepared for that to be the Champions League and suddenly now you've got to get a new one, uh, I think there is a little bit of frustration with the way it works here in the U.S., but at the same time, uh, I think it, as long as you can have access or have somebody else's access, I think the variety and the amount of games you can watch here with relative ease I, it's hard for me to knock any of them too much, and I think BN is part of that as well, especially because BN is on Fubo. You can get all of the different stations and lots of different leagues covered as well. But I do think NBC and CBS have done a very good job in the way they cover the game. Graham, do you have any thoughts on this one as a as a non-US resident? I'm wondering if you have thoughts on US coverage. I, I do, actually, because I think I've said before, I'm a complete TV broadcast, broadcast rights nerd uh, when it comes to these sort of things. So... Yeah, um, NBC, the thing I, the thing about NBC, I don't know if they've been doing this in COVID times, but the thing I always loved about NBC's Premier League coverage was the, this is terrible, terrible marketing speak, but the activation that they do. So the, the kind of the soccer mornings thing where they go around the country and they oh, have yeah. kind of fans and they have meetups and all that. I my thought that Premier was, League I thought morning, that really I believe good. the branding has been blazed into my brain. Yeah. Right. Okay. So yeah, I always, I always really liked that. And cause that's something that doesn't happen in the UK. So that's something different to me. Um, and then, yeah, a lot of what Joe said about CBS and, and, and Paramount, um, I think they're very good at, with the Champions League, they're very good at producing those viral clips with the pundits. And when I see that format, I see a lot of the the kind of inside the NBA thing with uh, Jamie Carragher and Michael Richards, which is kind, it's kind of alien to me as a British viewer because we don't have that. A lot of the coverage for in the UK is very straight down the middle and very serious, and this is a big game, and we must treat it like a big game. So I like that kind of fresh approach, approach with a little bit of comedy with those guys. And then um, one of the things I like about CBS's USMNT broadcast, and I can't, I can't quite put my finger on what that says, and I'd, I'd like to hear your guys' thoughts on whether you agree with me on this, but they feel big time. So sometimes when I watch games on some other broadcasters, be in uh, sometimes on Fox, even sometimes on ESPN, I have to say it feels a little bit a, a little bit small time. I don't know with CBS whether it's the the A list pundits or the music, which is quite kind of like regal and important sounding, and I don't know. It just it make they make the games feel like they matter when the US is on uh, CBS. So for US games, they are absolutely my favorite. Like when it's on CBS and I'm streaming those games, like I'm very happy to see it's on CBS. Well, I think it's. It, in large part, it's because of all the resources. Like I mentioned, you get sideline reporters on both sides in yeah. a lot of these games. You get the full pregame show. You get a postgame show with a studio. With I mean, Grant Wall has been doing some hits for them. Like you get different voices and you get them on location. You get them in the studio. That I mean, they brought uh, the whole Clint Dempsey and, and company studio crew. They're bringing them to Mexico for the Azteca game. Like it's to me, it is the resources they are that they are devoting to these broadcasts combined with some of the production stuff that I admittedly don't know as much about, but I think that's a big part of it for me, Graham. Man, I had not thought about the quality of the production and the way it's approached because, Graham, the, you you nailed it there for me with, with my one main thing with Fox, and I couldn't figure it out, is like I don't love the way it's presented. I don't mind the presenters themselves, but the way they're always sitting at the same desk with kind of the same background, and when it's Rob Stone doing the hosting – he sits at the same desk in the same sort of setting, but with different people to do college football and I think a couple other sports as well. And so they don't really change it. So you get the sense that it's like, yeah, it's the Fox studio. It is what it is. Whereas CBS, they seem to be in some sort of supervillain bunker. Uh, I don't really know how they afford that. Maybe maybe like supervillains are priced out of the market. Who knows? But uh, I think there is something to be said for adding that level of sincerity and, and polish to the production. I think sometimes you can go overboard with that and try to make it too much about like being cool and looking cool and talking cool than providing actual analysis. And thus far, CBS seems to have found uh, the happy combination there. So, all right, I, I, I like this. I'm, I'm happy now. I'm happier after the Man United conversation. <laughs> this, is, this is a question that maybe you guys don't have the answer to, but the, the, the studio that CBS used for the Champions League and that they use for the USMNT games, is that the same studio? Because the studio they use for the Champions League is in London. They're not flying like Clint Dempsey no. and they're not flying I mean, to London for US games, are they? Must be a different No, studio. I would assume it's all green screen, right? And so you can sort of 
if you're in London, you can make it look somewhat similar. If you're in LA, you can make it look right. somewhat similar. Yeah, I that guess. would be my assumption for what they're doing. It yeah. does take away a little bit of the majesty, like match of the day, when you see what that set actually looks like versus yeah. how crazy futuristic it seems once the green screens are in effect. Makes a little bit of a difference. Yeah, I, I guess I'm just scarred from in the UK Sky when Scotland games are on Sky, they fly the Scotland pundits to London for the studio, even when the games are in Scotland, which is always bizarre to me. I'll never understand that. Well, I do understand that it. it's for the studio, but it's weird. Uh, Graham will never understand that. I will never understand lying about kickoff. Just tell us when coverage starts. I'll watch the pregame show <laughs> if you tell me there's a pregame show, but don't tell me kickoff is at a certain time and then I show up and it's the pregame show beginning. Then I get mad. I'm going to take a moment to cool down. We'll be back with more questions in just a moment. Hey folks, this is Taylor from the Total Soccer Show reminding you that we are inching ever closer to the start of the summer transfer window, which means there are teams that will buy and sell their players early, there are teams that will leave that business very late, and there are teams that will operate in between, but no matter what, it's going to be a chaotic situation, there's going to be offers coming through willy-nilly, there's going to be transactions to be tracked and processed and make sure that enough money is there, there's going to be probably angry clubs calling to complain, there are many things to deal with, and unfortunately for those clubs, there is no sort of business tool that makes things easier, makes transactions simpler, gets the business done efficiently and effectively, but for the small businesses around the globe, there is such a service, Shopify. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business, from the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're auctioning autographed apparel or selling sleek kits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere from their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify helps turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms. And you can sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. And I really appreciate that about Shopify. No matter how big you are, no matter how fast you want to grow, Shopify gives you everything you need to take control and take your business to the next level. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the United States, and Shopify's the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, Brooklyn, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. That's as many countries as will be selling players in the transfer window this summer. Plus, Shopify's extensive help resources are there to support your success every step of the way because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash TSS, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash TSS now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash TSS. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com courtside to learn more. Welcome back to a listener question episode of the Total Soccer Show. Up next, a question from Ira Jersey. Hi, Ira. Ira and Isaac, his son, longtime listeners. Was Felipe Coutinho moving to Aston Villa more important to their change in form? Or is it something tactically from Steven Gerrard that's driven the turnaround? Joe Lowry, how say you? I think it's got to be both, Ira. I really do. I, I think... I think both of these pieces played really big parts. And I'll get to Coutinho in just a minute because he has been a massive piece of this, certainly. And I think you're wise to point that out. So so Aston Villa, just background here in case anybody's forgotten, they appointed Gerard manager on November 11th after dismissing Dean Smith. So they lost five straight games leading up to that managerial change. Since then, Gerard and Villa have eight wins, eight losses, and two draws. They're ninth in the league as of time of recording. Under Dean Smith, they had four wins, seven losses, and two draws. So, so things certainly have been looking up for Aston Villa, and they're in a a fine spot in the table right now for them. Some tactical things have changed from Gerrard to Smith, in addition to the, uh, flip that around, from Smith to Gerrard, and and in addition to the new manager bump, which certainly appears to be a real thing here with how how effective they were in the immediate aftermath of Gerrard taking over. Tactically, 
there's been a real shift to a 4-3-3 as one potential shape for them with two really narrow playmaking wingers with Felipe Coutinho and Emi Buendia, who I talked about way back in my Premier League previews as a player that I really liked. And I think he's he's shown some nice things, although he's now overshadowed by Coutinho and understandably so. We've seen the 4-3-3 with narrow wingers. We've also seen a 4-4-2 diamond recently with Coutinho as the 10. That's been the shape that Gerrard has opted for much more recently and has been using that fairly consistently. From what I've watched of those couple of shapes and from looking at some of the numbers, Villa are now doing a better job of finding balance between the really dangerous attacking movements that they have and defensive stability. They didn't have quite that much. They didn't have that level of balance under Smith. They were, they, they tended at times to be more defensive and they lack some of that attacking creativity. Now they have that creativity with good midfield cover underneath and, and some other talented players, including Lucas Digne, who was brought in in that, in that winter transfer window as well. So when I talk about the balance between attack and, and defense and, and really that midfield cover too, a, a big part of that is Coutinho. I think we have to mention him here. And I, I think, again, he's a huge part of all of this. He's been their best attacker since coming into this team. He leads the team in expected goals plus expected assists on a per 90-minute basis. And he's been a top five, a top five Premier League attacker by those same metrics since joining Villa and, and coming back to the Premier League. He's been elite for them. He has been so, so good. And Aston Villa are not ninth on the table right now if they don't have Felipe Coutinho. Graham, agree, disagree? Yep, I think I think Joe pretty much nailed it. That um those two inside wingers or attacking midfielders, whatever you want to whatever you want to call it, that is very much the Gerard the Gerard shape. He used that to great effect at Rangers. Um, he also asks the, the fullbacks to go bombing on up, up bombing, bombing on up the wings, but that obviously loads of coaches do that. That's not particularly unique to Gerrard. So I would say the thing that is unique to him is, is those two um, attacking midfielders, those central attacking midfielders. And that's why um, when Gerrard was going into to Villa, I've, I always thought that was going to be a good fit because it looked like they had the, the players to make that system work. And even more so with Coutinho, I wrote a piece not to give myself too much credit, but I basically said if Coutinho doesn't work at Aston Villa, I think he's maybe finished at that sort of level because everything is in his favour. He's got a manager who believes in him, who knows what he can do from their time together at Liverpool. The system is set up for him as well. He's not being asked to play out on the left wing, as was the case at Barcelona when they signed him um, to be the, the Neymar replacement and that never worked. Then they they, they were like, oh, we're we'll use him as the Iniesta replacement. That didn't work, unsurprisingly. So the system at Villa with those those two central attacking midfielders um, in advanced roles is 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 made for Coutinho. So I I personally think Gerard is the one of the two who deserves the most credit because I think without the tactical changes that he makes, Coutinho probably doesn't fit as well into the team and he's not as successful in a in a straight kind of four three four three three like it was at Barcelona where he was being asked to play it wide. So um, yeah, I think I think uh, having seen Gerard coach in Scotland, uh, I can see a clear framework that he's put in put in place very quickly at Villa, and I think that's probably the sign of a good coach is when someone comes in and makes those changes pretty quickly. Graham, a controversial and difficult question for you, I'm sure. Does that mean you're saying Steven Gerrard is a better uh, manager than Frank Lampard at present? <laughs> yeah, I mean that's all. It's always been uh, Gerard versus Lampard for a long it time. Has. Go back to players, and I think yes, Gerard. Um, emphatically wins that one at the moment, I would say. I'd say so too. Uh, I agree with everything you all have said. I will just add that I think Gerard deserves a lot of credit for the tactics and the way things are going on the pitch. Coutinho deserves some of the credit for that. And Joe, I think you did a great job of outlying or outlaying all of the stats that back that up. I also just think the name, his name brings a level of cachet that I think they are then getting the best out of him, utilizing that. But you look at how Lucas Digne, for example, Joe, you mentioned him. Uh, from what I read is like one of the things that convinces him to join Villa is that Coutinho is joining and it gives it an air of credibility. And I think as they continue to succeed, they are theoretically targeting top seven or top eight. I think they want to break into Europe at some point. Having players like that come in and succeed shows to other players that this can be a little bit of a reclamation project, but it's not fully a, we're bringing you in because you have a big name and you sell tickets. It's that we're actually going to get the best out of you. And I think that will kind of set the stage for future transactions for them. So in that way, I think it makes a lot of sense too, but credit to Coutinho, credit to Steven Gerrard, credit to Sagar Shriramagiri for our next question. Uh, Graham, I think we're going to come to you for this one. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> is there a game that you, as a fan, cried tears of joys, joy or tears of sadness, one that you will forever remember in your heart? And Sagar, uh, 
notes, they are very curious to hear Graham's answer. <laughs> because you have no emotions or tears is the, <laughs> yeah. is the implication there, Graham. Yeah. I, yeah, I got that. Um, so the answer as a Sterling See, Albion fan is actually I, no. Graham, um, I'm sorry to interrupt you. I, I actually took that the other way around. So I'm wondering, I, Joe, you are probably right. But I do think of Graham as being emotional when it comes to football and having a lot of emotions tied up in the Scottish national team and in his club and in sort of certain players. So I, I do feel like there's a good chance yep. that Graham has cried at football. So it's like my only, it's like my only release in life. Yes. Like I pent everything up, and it's football and Pixar films that uh, release. It. Those are the two good choices, yeah, though. But, to be fair, good choices. But, uh, genuinely, with Pixar films, like I struggle to watch some of the the new yeah. Pixar films because they are really tugging on the heartstrings with some of the plot points in, the, in the, those films. Yep. But anyway, back to the question. The uh, the answer as a Star and Albion fan is no. Okay. I do. I think I'm more, much more likely to cry tears of joy or like relief rather than tears of sadness through yeah. sport. And my frame of reference for that is is Andy Murray, who I've cried tears of joy for like a number of times. Sadness is kind of my default setting, so I can't really <laughs> cry sad tears. I don't think. <laughs> and and so when Albion were good, when we got big results and we're playing at a good level, I I was a teenager, and so crying for joy isn't really in your emotional vocabulary at that age so maybe if we got back to that level as a fan-owned club and won promotion or something back to the second tier that that maybe I wouldn't totally rule it out but I was I was trying to think of the only um the time when I had cried at football and the only time I could come up with was actually quite recently and that was at at the Euros last summer so when Scotland uh, walked out for their first game and uh there's there was a lot wrapped up in that moment so it was it was our first international tournament for 23 years it was something I hadn't seen as an adult it was a home game as well as a, ma- a major tournament oh, yeah. but you also had the pandemic wrapped up in all in all that it was the first time I'd seen a, a crowd in a Scottish stadium for over a year um so yeah that that all got to me a bit like Scotland walking out for that game I, I do remember that being quite emotional but other than that Come on, get a grip. Graham, what game, is there a game in, that comes to mind in recent memory that did make you sort of like rage afterwards? If not cry, is there one that you were particularly frustrated about in the end? Uh, well, like most games. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. right. I get frustrated at loads of teams. Like it used to be Arsenal. I used uh-huh. to get so frustrated watching Arsenal, uh, but they've they've recently turned a corner. And then kind of now, I guess it would be Manchester United. Like, I'm not even a fan, but I get so frustrated with Manchester United because it feels like we're just in this never-ending cycle of talking about the same things with Manchester United and they never learn their lesson. Why are they not getting better? They've got so much money. Uh, But anyway, I feel like I'm doing the Taylor Rockwell bit here. That's fine. That's fine. Yes, stepping on my turf. Uh, Graham, because you did that, I'm just going to ask you a very personal question. So uh, I don't know if your daughter is at all into football at all. Mine is not quite yet because she is 16 months old. But if... Your daughter were to get into football and asked you, like, what what is it? What's your favorite moment? What's the thing that, like, makes it resonate so much for you? What is the moment that maybe does bring a tear to your eye, like, specifically? Is it a goal? Is it a team? Is it an individual performance? What is that thing that you would point to as, like, this is why I love this game? Um, That's a difficult one to, to answer. I think anything that has, like, a, like a rooting in mm-hmm. community... Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. So when when Albion were were bought by the fans, I I was still pretty young. I think I was maybe late teens. So as I say, um, it was a little bit of a joke, but I, I kind of mean it as well. Like you're emotionally, you're maybe you're you're that's maybe not in your vocabulary at that time to to be all that uh, outwardly emotional at that age. But if that were to happen now, like the first game after we'd been saved and taken over by the fans, and that first game was. Um, home game in the, in the first first division against Dundee and we draw 2-2 and score five minutes from the end like that potentially is maybe when like that's that's maybe football at its at its best yeah. for me because it's something rooted in the in the community um, and I guess obviously like goals and important wins maybe that's the hook but it doesn't even necessarily need to be something glorious it, it could be a team that you just feel like represents you in some way. I remember Andy Graham scoring a really important goal for Stern Albion away to Cowdenbeath. We'd been 3-1 down. That was the goal that pretty much put us up as this kind of uh, 
as the fan takeover was happening. It hadn't happened at that point, and Andy Graham had been had had a lot of injury problems, and he was kind of a, a fan figure, and he'd done a lot of fundraising for the club and trying to be fan-owned. So something like that now would maybe probably tip me over the edge slightly, and, and yeah. that's maybe where, if I was to say to Sophie, my daughter, why football is so good, that's maybe something I would point to. That's a great answer. And you're right, it, it is the sort of representation of community. I think no moment... Like, like it doesn't matter if you hate if they're your arch rivals. Anytime a stadium is cheering for a player's kid to score a goal, like at the end of a game, like like there's the yeah. one with Salah's daughter where the entire crowd is cheering for her as she gets closer and closer I to goal. That. Those moments always make me very, very happy. And I would say the ones that make me feel connected to a larger community, especially, yeah, Graham, I think with the pandemic in mind, uh, and the, the two that will always make me tear up, genuinely, uh, the reaction video to Landon Donovan's goal in the 2010 World Cup where you have, because at the time, I think soccer was, like, it was a popular sport, obviously, but you didn't have that sense that everybody in the country was paying attention to it. And if you watch that video, it's just people celebrating in various public places and bars and in their living rooms. But seeing so many people in so many different areas of the country be so emotionally affected, it will still bring a tear to my eye. And the Rudy music behind it does not hurt either. And the other one on a similar note would be the Brooks header, the John Brooks header against Ghana in the 2014 World Cup, the late winner. His reaction is iconic, the kind of lay down, disbelief, head shake. Um, but also watching that one with Daryl, we both like celebrated emphatically, jumped around. His dog thought something was wrong and was mirroring <laughs> our stress levels the whole time and very anxious throughout the game. Uh, so I think those two, for the human connection, the human component, I think will always make me very emotional. So Graham, I very much appreciate uh, your sharing of that one. Joe, uh, anything to add? Joe, I feel like you are the one who I would say least likely to cry at a sporting event. Yeah, I, I, I never have. I've gotten really excited and really sad before, but those things have never turned into tears. One time I just ran around my driveway after the Arizona Cardinals beat the Green Bay Packers in the playoffs. That was pretty exciting. <laughs> was this like two weeks ago? No, or was no, this no. This was, this was okay. years ago. Yeah, this was years okay. ago. Um, I, I, I wish I'd seen that. I'm, I'm envisaging kind of the yeah. Macaulay Culkin running around the hallway as he's been left in the house on his own you know that kind of it was his hands up in the air it was not dissimilar to that Graham um, see so yeah, I've never cried for a, a soccer game but I think the closest I've come to the saddest I've been is that 2-1 loss to Trinidad and Tobago in 2017 for, for sure that that just left like this really awful feeling in my stomach it, it never actually came up to my tear ducts but man that was not fun and then Phoenix Rising losing to Louisville City in the USL Cup final in 2018 also was a, a real gigantic bummer. Like, that did not feel good. And so I, uh, I don't really like that feeling, and my teams don't tend to win a lot of, like, important things. And so sports just tend to be sad more so than, than happy for me. But it's still fun because, I, I don't know, there's something that I just can't quit about them. The, the part, Taylor, to, I know you didn't ask me this question, but I think Graham's answer to, you know, how would you tell your child, you know, how would you communicate to them why you love this game so much? I would just point to that Leeds video that was making the rounds yeah, on Twitter. It's, oh. So it's it's the game that we talked about on Weekend Review of Leeds. It's Galehart that scores that late winner for Leeds. A huge game for them. Huge game for Jesse Martian and really everyone involved in that club. And it, it, there's a video going around on Twitter. Please go watch it. Of of just the the dugout cam. Not the dugout. What's that called? Is that called a dugout in soccer? The it's bench. Called, okay, the bench. Yeah. yeah. It's all the coaches and the players on the bench. And it's just a video on them and the, the top a few rows, the bottom few rows of the of the crowd right above them. And as the ball is getting closer to goal, you can't see it, but you can sort of imagine what it's like. The fans stop the chant that they're chanting. And then as it becomes abundantly clear that a, goal, a ball is about to go in the back of the net, it, it's just still. And then it gets so loud all at once, and there's just this eruption of joy in that stadium. I have no connection to Leeds, I guess, outside of a not even a real connection to Jesse Marsh. But Watching that moment, I think you can't help but get chills and sort of feel why so many people love this sport. Yeah, that yeah co the collective explosion. That's it's a, crazy. That's a good moment. Crazy. Every, everything about that video is good. Yeah. So Stuart Dallas, who's who's a, yeah. a lead boy, he's <laughs> yeah. kind of like on the ground, on his knees, but like pounding the ground and like <laughs> celebration. Oh, the whole team is up in the corner. So that's going so on. Good. And then like Jesse Marsh's reaction yep. is is. Like so, it's slightly strange, but I totally, totally get it. Like, and I, I maybe I'm reading too much into it, but like, 
I thought it was kind of related to like Leipzig, where oh, yeah. things didn't go his way. He didn't get the big moments. He didn't get the big celebration. And that celebration where he's kind of like battering through his coaching staff my favorite. Uh, my was kind of like about time, like about time I get one of these big moments uh, that go my way. So yeah, that was a great video. Good, good call, Joe. Yeah, definitely, Joe. He he goes full pro wrestler. That's the only way. And even at the end, the kind of like the rock-esque strut he does of just like, that's right. No one touched me. Like, he, I, I loved it. I was ready for like British pundits to criticize him not running to the players. I love that he runs back to the bench to celebrate and sort of just has that. You can just tell it is that like release of pent up frustration over the months that he finally gets to have. And yeah, th- those moments are so great. I think the the down moments, Joe, that you mentioned are also equally important. Uh, Butters from South Park remains the the greatest explainer of why sadness is important. You can't have the happiness, you can't have that joy if you don't first have that sadness, as depressing as it sounds. But you have to have both. If you're happy all the time, then that's just your default setting. You no longer experience that. So the ups and downs are what makes it great. And that, that sounds video, like an argument for promotion and relegation. If you ask, there me. we go. Pro rail in the <laughs> USA. Let's make it happen. Uh, Graham, you're on that now. No more. No more question answering. Uh, we're going to take a quick break. Graham's going to go solve the pro rail question. We'll be right back to hear Graham's solution and with a few more questions. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7, U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Today's episode is brought to you by our old friends, Mac Weldon. Wouldn't it be nice if we could have things both ways, like a zero-calorie cheeseburger, internet ads in March that weren't just reminders to do your taxes, a dog that never needs walking after midnight when it's cold, a Manchester United that is consistently good instead of their current scattershot approach? Well, we tend to think of clothing as an either-or situation as well. People think looking sharp means starchy Oxfords and stiff chinos rather than effortless comfort. But it's possible to have it both ways. Mack Weldon makes timeless apparel with modern performance fabrics for guys who want to look and feel sharp without sacrificing comfort. From their light-as-air underwear to innovative anti-odor tees and versatile yet comfortable pants, Mack Weldon has a full range of clothes that never go out of style. I got a few things recently, including a long-sleeve polo, which I love, uh, maybe the most comfortable t-shirt, which I also love, and my new favorite sweatpants, the Ace sweatpant. It's exactly what I described above, comfort and versatile, but still stylish. It's the type of sweatpant I can wear to pick up my kids from daycare and not think, I'm now wearing sweatpants in public. The other parents will judge me. Now I just think, judge away, nerds, because you will never be this comfortable unless you're also wearing a pair, in which case, high five. Mack Weldon is not flashy. It's just classic, always in style, and made from the world's most comfortable performance materials. They're designed to fit both your style and the demands of modern life. So get timeless looks with modern comfort from Mack Weldon. Go to MacWeldon.com and get 20% off your first order with promo code TSS. That's M-A-C-K-W-E-L-D-O-N.com, promo code TSS to get 20% off your first order. Thank you to Mack Weldon for sponsoring today's episode. Welcome back. Three more questions. First, Graham, you solved it. ProRail in the USA. How are we doing it? Yeah, 10 teams up, 10 teams down, every Perfect. league, all the way. It's just <laughs> all the absolute way. chaos. Yeah, <laughs> And then I'm assuming that that's across sports. So the best teams in baseball will play the best teams in football, will be- play the best teams in hockey? Yeah, and we're going to mix it up. We're going to mix it up with uh, men's and women's football and uh, age groups as well. Yep. So we're going to have 12-year-olds <laughs> in MLS. Yeah, why not? Just mix the whole thing up. You, congratulations! You won the little little league World Series. You're now playing against the Chicago Blackhawks tonight. Good luck. Yeah. Um, perfect. I like it. All right. Well, Graham has done that. Graham, I am here for that solution. Well done, sir. Uh, Joe, I'll come to you for this one from Alex uh, Seacrest. As someone who's new to following La Liga, their top flight seems to have predominantly striped home shirts outside of Italy, or more predominantly striped shirt home shirts outside of Italy than most top flight leagues. Is there any history as to why this is the case? Also, as someone who works in the service industry in the U.S. and has only Sundays and Mondays off, it seems like I'm always watching Athletic Club on my days off. Is there a reason they almost exclusively do not play on Saturdays? I will take the second part of that one first and say I looked it up. Most of the stuff I could find was confused tourists wondering why everything was shut down in Bilbao on Sundays. Not a lot of an explanation as to why they play when they do. Not sure if there is one, but Joe, uh, I leave it 
it to you to answer either the second part or the first part, whichever one you prefer. Sure, I'll take a quick stab at both just to be extra here. I, I really it. couldn't find an answer to that second one. I, I couldn't find anything in the schedules. I couldn't find any any reasoning in my research. So I'm curious about that, and I would be a little surprised if there was a, a, a real reason, but maybe Graham will fill us in on that. As far as the jerseys go, I don't believe that there is a set overarching reason why many La Liga clubs have striped jerseys. But I, I think a lot of them have them for different reasons. They do have them for different reasons. Atletico Madrid, I've got three quickly. Atletico Madrid, they have that red and white stripe look. From what I've read, um, those colors became the chosen colors for that team after the owners just bought the cheapest material they could find. And that turned out to be white and red stripes. So that's what they ended up with way back when in the 20th century. I believe 20th century. Barcelona, FC Barcelona, in the past, and this isn't their default jersey, but I thought this was interesting. In the past, they've had the vertical striped Catalonian flag colors, that that bright yellow and red. Those are the stripes on the Catalonian flag, which is the region that Barcelona is in. And they go they go horizontally on the actual flag, but they're vertical on the jersey. We also see them with the actual Barcelona colors, the deep red and the blue as vertical stripes as well. Espanol, this is the last one I've got before I turn it over to Graham. They've got the blue and white colors, again, usually vertical stripes. They were chosen to honor the shield of Roger de Uria, who was an admiral in the 13th century. And that was his colors and his look, apparently, way back in, in medieval times. So each club, from what I've read and from what I understand, has their own reasons. It may be, and I don't even know if this is true, it may be that La Liga has more clubs with striped jerseys. It may not be that might change on a year-to-year basis. I don't know. But I do think it's interesting to go and research and learn about, okay, what is the history of this jersey and of this club's look? I think with Atleti in particular, to focus on that one, uh, the, do you know their nickname, Joe? Oh, it's the Mattress somethings, right? The Mattress Makers, yeah. yeah. Los uh, Cochoneros, I believe it is. And that, as I understand it, is because that fabric they chose, the cheapest fabric, was the traditional like mattress uh, yeah. colors. And so basically it was just like that fabric was widely available, so they used that, and that's how it went. But you'll also hear those stories about how they kind of pulled inspiration from early British clubs, um, and a lot of those kind of early founding ones used the stripies, and so teams followed suit. So there is a little bit of a historical connection there, but I think a lot of it comes down to the availability of dyes and materials and whatever was easiest, whatever was cheapest, whatever wasn't black, because that was reserved for officials and officials alone. Uh, I think that's what they went with. I have a couple more theories on some things, but Graham, I turn it to you, our resident Jersey expert. So, so I went down the, the historical route of, of teams in Spain and Italy and in uh, South America and Brazil in particular, borrowing styles from uh, English football predominantly. So there's a good section in football type, which is a, a big uh, kind of coffee table style volume on shirt design and typeface. There's actually two of them. I think the first one is sold out, but you can still get the second one if you, if you Google that. It's very good. It's one of my favorite uh, books that I own because uh, I'm a nerd and there's a good section that explains why there are a lot of striped shirts in countries like Spain and Italy and Brazil as I say uh, and as I also say a lot of football has its early roots in England and the UK a lot of Englishmen exported the game to other countries so when that happened they would create a club abroad and they would look back home for inspiration on colours either a team that they supported back in the UK or just a, a team if you're looking for inspiration inspiration for a shirt you're probably going to pick something that stands out a little bit um taylor you're absolutely right to mention the availability of of dye so that was a consideration so when you're looking at something that stands out and is potentially cheaper stripes are uh, an appealing option so looking to italy i know the question's about spain but looking to italy for some precedent as well the fam- famous example is juventus who cop- copied uh, knox county's design but then you have a athletic club who took their look from uh, southampton you have Real Betis, who they have their green and white stripes in part thanks to... So it's the, the Andalusian flag is green and white, um, but also uh, one of the founding members of that club was a Sevilla native who spent time in Glasgow watching Celtic play, obviously Celtic play in hoops and Betis play in stripes, so not entirely a copycat, but that's that was a an inspiration for that shirt as well. So um, there's a lot of different reasons. There's no there's no one answer to that to that question to Alex's question. Joe's right to mention Barcelona using the Catalan flag as as inspiration. Taylor, you're right to mention the availability, but there is also a historical element of looking to English football for for inspiration as well. Graham, is the usage of hoops is that a Scottish thing or is that a UK thing? 
Like the, that um, word itself, not like not uh, horizontal stripes, but actually calling those things hoops. Oh right, okay. You mean the actual term? Yeah. Um, ugh, I'm not sure about. I don't know if I can speak for the rest of the mm-hmm. UK, but Celtic is very much you always you would never get away with calling it stripes. Yeah. Like their nickname as a club is the Hoops, so it's just very easy for me to say Hoops. I, yeah. I don't know. I, I can't speak for. Maybe if Ryan Bailey was here, he he could he could tell I'm me. Sure. How they, how, I'm sure what he would sort have of weird English rules. they speak down south, yeah, but... <laughs> um, I ask, but, like, there are those certain words, it's kind of unrelated to the question, I'm mostly just curious, there are the certain words and phrases that, that immediately tell on Americans, uh, like, is it wide fullback that you all would never use, or wide back, or outside back, is outside back the one that outside immediately back, says, yeah. yeah, and I was wondering if horizontal stripes was one of those as well, versus just calling them hoops. So what? So what is an outside back? Is that from another sport, or is that some? Is that just another term for like a wing back? Or I think it's just another term for fullback, like the yeah. outside defenders. Right, okay. Yeah, yeah. Center back yeah, and outside back. That. One is in the center, one is outside. It makes sense. Get out of here. Get out of here with your purity. <laughs> I would add, Grandma, thing you mentioned there about Real Batis. This is sort of my speculation: is that I think some clubs that are rooted in areas that are more regional than national, or like if you have city-states in certain areas, I think they're going to reflect that sort of independence a little bit more. And so, yeah, Batiste with the green and white flag, I think there's plenty of other ones that sort of hearken to their local flag, their historical connections to a city, and less so the country as a whole. So I think you sometimes will get that, and that will be represented in the stripes of the flag, then going on to the stripes of the kit. But I think there's a lot of different reasons, all that to say, we need more stripes, because even the clubs that historically wear stripes, like Juve, now wear different weird versions of that. Inter sort of stick with it. Milan have different thicknesses to their stripes. I don't know why we've moved away from just the sort of consistent look of a stripey shirt. I like so, it. I think it looks good. So part of that, to give an actual answer to that question, part of that is the change in the shirt regulations from FIFA, where they require um, kind of like a lighter shorts and a oh. darker shirt or a lighter shirt and darker shorts. And so block colors are much easier. So this is like a trend across soccer so you mentioned Juventus there they've moved away from like uh, their their usual stripes they had a half and half shirt not so long ago like black and white half and half PSG is another example they used to have the big white stripe down the middle with red they're now just using block like dark navy blue um, and a lot of that is UEFA and FIFA regulations but also just brands have decided that stripes are not cool and I say brands you're wrong stripes are very yeah. cool yeah, stripes and hoops, both cool. Uh, I also think it would be very cool if we went back to the historical uh, like basis of having the goalkeeper wear the same jersey as the outfield players, but then the way you differentiate it is he puts on a nice cap. That's what I want. I want same jersey, <laughs> just wearing a hat. That's how you differentiate the goalkeeper. I don't see what could go wrong there, how that could create more chaos immediately. Yeah, a, a hat related to the region of the club that they're Perfect. playing for. So a cowboy hat for anyone in uh, like Texas, <laughs> a Yankees cap. I don't know for yeah. anyone in New York. I, I, yeah. Maybe I, I, I don't know how far you could go with this. <laughs> the Rev, I think the Revs goalkeeper is wearing one of those like Boston page boy caps. Yeah, I, they're the newsboy caps. Yeah, well, yeah, I like this. All right, uh, cool. Minnesota United like a Viking hat, I guess. Oh yeah, uh, obviously with the completely not realistic horns. You got to get those in there. Yeah, and yeah. and the, and the blonde like pigtails, Viking pigtails. <laughs> Uh, all right, Graham's going to work on that. He's already soft pro rel. <laughs> now he's going to work on uh, like city-specific hats for goalkeepers. In the meantime, uh, we'll answer David Beffert's question. Why is Thomas Muller's number 25 for Bayern instead of a more traditional number for someone of his importance to the team? He, he even switched from 13 to 25 for the national team. So it must mean something to him. Uh, I will say in doing a, a lot of reading for this question, maybe more reading than any other question, my answer is I do not have an answer. I have more of one for why he wore 13 for the national team. I couldn't find much on why he wears 25. Uh, Graham, did you find much on this one? Uh, not really. Same right. as you. So the context for Germany is he wears 13 for Germany. Oh, he did used to wear 13 for Germany because that number um, is traditionally worn by the top goal scorer for Germany. That dates back to Gerd Müller who um, that was his old number, the record goal scorer for, for Germany. Um, and so when Müller was called up for the first time to the national team, he had a choice of 4, 13 or 14. And as a forward, he went for the one that had the most resonance. For Bayern Munich, 25, 
I don't I don't think yep. it's beyond much more than when he's registered in that squad for the first time in 2008, that is one of the numbers that was available to yep. him. He picked that number. He performed well in that number. He stuck with that number. Uh, I would agree. Joe, do you have anything else like specific to add to that, or should we fold this into Chris Welter's question? No, I think, I think we should fold it in, Taylor. All right. Because, yeah, Chris Welter asked, at the Manchester Derby this week, the vast majority of the kit numbers were unconventional. Mares uh, wearing number 26, Foden number 47, Cancelo 27, McTominay 39. Even Pogba seems hardly a conventional number six, and even the world-class likes of Kevin De Bruyne as number 17. Uh, he's hardly a youngster trying to earn his spot in the team. Have teams stopped conventional numbering by position, or is this a function of increased substitutions and more varied teams, Joe Lowry? Yeah, it is in large part a function of bigger squads, for one. Squads are now, I think, certainly bigger than they, they were 20, 30 years ago. And more subs, having five in a game, allows us to see players that we wouldn't see normally. So we do still get a lot of the conventional shirt numbers, right? Robert Lewandowski wearing the nine. Neymar as a playmaker, not a, not a traditional attacking midfielder, but as a playmaker, wearing the number 10 is very much a classic thing to do. Joshua Kimmich wearing the number six, right, as that central defensive midfielder for Bayern. But I, I do think with a lot more people on teams in certain instances, at least at bigger clubs, we see more numbers. That's part of it. Another part, to, to go back to the Thomas Muller question, is players joining the team getting a certain number, right? And I'm thinking about academy graduates in particular here. The question mentioned Scott McTominay, who moved through the Manchester United Academy. He was given the number 39 and has just kept it and talked about how, yeah, he doesn't really plan to change it. He just is number 39. That's what he was given, and that's what he wears now. Similar, I believe, with Trent Alexander-Arnold, who wears 66. Coming through the Liverpool Academy, that was his first team number, and he's kept it, right? So you get some of these weird situations. Not quite Liga Mekis weird, where you get to wear triple digits for your first season after becoming a, or making your debut and moving through the ranks. It's, it's strange in Liga Mekis how they have those in the hundreds, those numbers in the hundreds. But players coming through and joining a team, it's not unheard of, and, and we've seen plenty of examples, even just talked about them just now. We've seen plenty of examples of players just keeping the numbers they're given because they develop some sort of affinity for that number. Yeah, and when you have just... Academy teams, you have like larger rosters than we've had historically. It's much harder to have the 1 through 11 really reflected unless you are actively trying to harken back to that tradition and making whoever you're starting right back is number two. But I think oftentimes you're going to let the players sort of choose what they want. And sometimes that leads to strange things. Like I think Ivan Zamorano was the one who wanted number nine. That was taken, so he wore number 18 because yeah. one plus eight equals. Uh, so I think you'll get sort of creativity in that, but I think a lot of the time it comes down to what they he were first assigned. He even put plus sign on his. <laughs> yeah. That was so good. Oh, he did, didn't he? I forgot about yeah. that. <laughs> so it was uh, one plus nine. Yeah, one plus great. eight. Graham, anything to add to either this or to uh, maybe just your favorite numbers from uh, soccer history? <laughs> Uh, my favorite numbers. Well, you could you could go through a number of those. There's, who was it that wore zero zero? I can't remember. There was a weird. I can't remember. That's that's a bad example. I should have done some research on that. But if it, to add to to what Joe said, um, I also think an element in the modern game is 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 down to is down to branding. To be honest, as well, I think players consider their number to be part of their their individual yeah. brand. So, um, you know, previously it would be, if you were in the first team, it would be one to 11, but now clubs need to register their, their squad numbers at the start of the season. In the past, you could shift the numbers depending on who was in the team, as I say, but now each player has to have the same number throughout the season. So it's, it's beneficial to a player as a, uh, as a brand, which I guess a lot of players now see themselves as to, to have a number. You see a lot of, you know, CR seven, Chris Ronaldo has, his uh, Nike brand, R9, Ronaldo 9. Um, I'm sure there's there's loads of others that I'm forgetting that incorporate their number in, into, the, into their brand. did have like a magazine called Five? Exactly, yeah. And I think that's like a YouTube channel as well now called, called Five. Yeah, he's made a whole brand out of Five, which was his number um, for England and Manchester United. And... Um, I don't think they're too bothered about having it one to one to eleven because if you have a, a number, you know, Riyad Mahrez, he has twenty six. That's a number I associate with Riyad Mahrez because there's not really that many other players, at least big name players, that that play with that number. So there is a there is a benefit to huh. them actually picking a a slightly unusual number that you know sixty six Trent Alexander Arnold. 
Who else wears 66? Kieran 40, Tierney. Yeah. I don't know if he play, He wears it for Arsenal now, but for Celtic, he was 67. That was all his number, and that was part of part of his brand for, for Celtic. So the first player that I remember really doing that and kind of taking a, a bigger number that would previously have been a squad number was actually David Beckham when he moved to Real Madrid, when he went for... Uh, 23, which at the time he said was a, a bit of an homage to, to Michael Jordan, who obviously wore that number for the, for the Chicago Bulls. But that's the first time I can remember a truly household name going for a number that wasn't 1 to 11. He'd obviously been 7 up until that point. So maybe that was a little bit of a watershed, was was players going for, uh, in terms of players going for slightly larger numbers, was Beckham going for 23? And then I think he went for 32 later in his career as well. He, he inverted the numbers and went for 32 at some point. I I hadn't thought about it as like, yeah, you can have your own sort of branding when it comes to the larger numbers. Because like Perisic, I think, wears 44, and that's the only one I can think of with that one. Brozovic, I think, always wears 77 or something like that. So you're right. You can have this own, your own sort of identity with a, with a higher number. So I think we'll still get the nines. We'll still get the tens. Maybe sometimes we'll still get an actual number six. But for the most part, I think we'll continue to get sort of strange numbers that are either unique to that player for personal reasons or unique to that player because it's what they were assigned and it's what they stuck with. But either way, I like the weirdness, I like the larger squads, and I like the stories behind some of the jerseys, and we should all have uh, math symbols in our jerseys, if if at all possible. Yes, uh, I call so. the pie symbol. That's me. <laughs> That's... I like the idea of Joe having pi as a number, and then when the referee goes to write it down, Joe just insisting that he use more and more digits. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Math nerd joke for you right there. And if, happy if anyone pie should have everyone. If anyone should have the pi symbol on their shirt, surely it's me. <laughs> that's yeah. That's fair. That's fair. I mean, weirdly, my my mind went to Wayne Rooney first, but then yes, yes, Graham. I think you you can also have the pi the pi symbol on your jersey. <laughs> yeah. Also, that non-league goalkeeper who got fined yeah. for eating the pie during oh, the, the FA King. Cup match. The king. Love that guy. <laughs> I love you guys. Uh, anything else to add from this question or any other questions, gentlemen? Okay, one, one last thing, because I, I researched about yeah. it, so I might as well say it now. Please. The, one other thing for numbers is not every country uses the same positional alignment for the numbers, right? So the biggest example that I can think of and, and learned about is Argentina. A six isn't a defensive midfielder in Argentina. It's a center back. The five is the, is the defensive midfielder. The five is the six. So Rodrigo de Paul, who plays for Atletico Madrid, played in the Champions League yesterday, he wears number five for Atleti, and he is a central midfielder, not a center back. So you get some of those, those wishy-washy changes from country to country because not everybody is like the Dutch or the English, you know? Man, that that's really God, soccer's interesting. The history of soccer is pretty great. People should write books about that. I'm not sure they do. Uh, they definitely do. <laughs> Ball is round is what I usually go to for any sort of historical research or, or things like that if people are interested in books to check out. But Joe Lowry, thank you for that information and for all the other information you provided today. Oh, you got it, Taylor. Graham Ruthven, same thing to you. Thank you, Taylor. <laughs> uh, listeners, thanks so much for listening. We'll talk to you all again tomorrow when we do some Champions League reviewing and I hold my head in my hands again. <laughs> <laughs>